This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi in studio with Jualani Tulono Sitlezuma as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Cameroon's Constitutional Council orders a rerun of the February 9th National Assembly election in the majority of the crisis prone English-speaking region. Malawi's ruling Democratic Progressive Party, otherwise known as DPP, and opposition United Democratic Front, UDF, uh, form an alliance ahead of elections. And 7 out of 10 foreign children in state care in South Africa are undocumented, and many cross borders into the country without adult supervision. We'll also have your sport as well as your economics news later on in the hour, but right now, here is Jolani Tullo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Zambia's former President Kenneth Kaunda has called for an end to the mysterious gas attacks on homes and public buildings in the southern African nation. At least 50 people suspected to be behind the attacks have been killed by mobs since the first case was reported in December. Kaunda said the attacks on homes, schools, colleges and prisons was of grave concern because Zambia was always known as a peaceful country. Zambia's President Edgar Lungu has offered a $17,000 reward for the arrest of people behind the attacks and has deployed the army to the most affected areas to help reassure the public. More than 370 homes have been targeted in the last three weeks in the country's Copper Belt province, affecting at least 1,000 people. Egypt's former President Hosni Mubarak has been buried in a military funeral in the capital Cairo. Mubarak ruled for 30 years until he was ousted in a 2011 popular uprising against corruption. He died on Tuesday in intensive care after weeks of undergoing surgery. The presidency declared three days of national mourning. Mubarak's coffin was to be airlifted from the field marshal, um, rather the field marshal mosque, to the family burial grounds. Dozens of Mubarak supporters, some of his from his his home village in the Nile Delta gathered outside the mosque. More than 20 people have been killed after yet another day of religious riots in the Indian capital, Delhi. 21 people have been killed so far and the deadliest violence in the city has seen in decades. Delhi remains on edge after the third consecutive night of rioting with reports of clashes between Hindu and Muslim groups. Close to 200 people are injured. There is heavy police presence in the affected areas and paramilitary troops have also been deployed in an effort to keep peace. Mauritius has temporarily suspended entry for Italian and Korean travellers as countries adopt precautions to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. This is to ensure that the Indian Ocean Island remains a safe destination for travellers. In a statement, the Mauritius Tourism Promotion Authority says that no cases of the coronavirus have been recorded in the country. Any visitor who has visited China in the past 14 days is placed in quarantine on arrival. Meanwhile, numerous countries around the world are making continuous 
contingency plans for a full-blown pandemic caused by the coronavirus outbreak. Austria, Croatia and Switzerland have reported their first cases of the virus, all apparently linked to the outbreak in Italy. The BBC's David Bamford has the story. The US-based Centers for Disease Control has starkly warned of the potential for disruption to daily life. Stock markets around the world are experiencing a fifth day of downturns. Japan and South Korea have recorded more victims. Sports are at a standstill in many areas of Asia, though Japan continues its preparations to host the Olympic Games. Infections have risen in Iran and northern Italy, with isolated cases connected to Italy cropping up in countries as far away as Brazil and Algeria. Ireland has proposed calling off next month's Six Nations rugby tie with Italy. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Cameroon's Constitutional Court, uh, Council rather, has ordered a rerun of the February 9th National Assembly election in a majority of the crisis-prone English-speaking regions due to widespread irregularities and fraud by President Paul Beer's ruling CPDM party that was declared winner. The opposition Social Democratic Front that filed the complaints says it is ready for the rerun as the Constitutional Council's verdict cannot be appealed. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. It was a very happy opposition Social Democratic Front when Kemang Atangana, Chief Justice of Cameroon's Constitutional Council, pronounced the verdict calling for the rerun of the February 9 National Assembly Lower House of Parliament election in a majority of the crisis-prone English-speaking regions. From the foregoing, we find merit in the petitions and hold that there were irregularities in the electoral operations of February 9, 2020 to elect members of parliament, which influenced the outcome of the elections and entirely ground the prayers of the petitioners that they set the elections in Munchum North, Mbui West, Mesam South, Mbui Center, Mbui South, Mesam Center, Lobiele, Momo East, Munchum South, Momo West, and Mesam North constituency be cancelled and a rerun ordered in compliance with Section 135 of the Electoral Code. The Social Democratic Front was one of more than 40 political parties that filed petitions with the Constitutional Council stating that the National Assembly elections were marred by violence and massive fraud committed by the ruling party. Opposition leaders accused the ruling Cameroon People's Democratic Movement of ballot stuffing. The opposition also accused the military sent by the government to protect voters from insurgents seeking to disrupt the polling of casting multiple votes for the ruling party. The government has denied the accusations. The Constitutional Council determined there was massive fraud by the ruling party assisted by the government. It found that the elections management body ELECAM created new polling centers on the eve of the polling and informed only the ruling party of where the centers were created. 
The Constitutional Council also ruled that people identified as opposition supporters were chased from polling stations and that separatist fighters who had vowed to disrupt the elections prohibited a majority of voters from casting their ballots. Joseph Mandam, lead counsel for the SDF, says the verdict reflects what transpired in the English-speaking regions where clashes between the military and separatists left scores dead on election day. People have often thought that the Constitutional Council cannot do justice. But I want to say that when petitions that reflect the laws that we have and are done in accordance with the prescriptions of the laws, the Constitutional Council will have no other choice than to uphold such petitions. Grigoire Owona, Assistant Secretary General of the ruling CPDM party, says the party is disappointed but will respect the verdict. Nous sommes frustrés par cette dernière décision parce que nous avions beaucoup travaillé he says President Paul Bia's Cameroon People's Democratic Movement political party is very frustrated by the verdict because it worked so hard to secure victories in a majority of the English-speaking regions in spite of the crisis. He says as a Republican party, it accepts the verdict of the Constitutional Council and is already preparing for the rerun. Devant la décision de cette haute juridiction, la loi est dure, mais c'est la loi. According to Cameroon's electoral code, the verdict of the Constitutional Council cannot be appealed, and fresh elections have to be organized in a minimum of 20 days and a maximum of 40 days after the court verdict. But there are still fears the election may not be successful, as the separatist crisis has continued with the military and rebels involved in running battles. More than 30 other petitions to partially or totally cancel the election due to fraud were rejected for lack of evidence. We will adopt the rapporteur's decision. We associate ourselves in total with the rapporteur's decision. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Malawi's ruling Democratic Progressive Party, otherwise known as the DPP, and the opposition United Democratic Front, known as the UDF, have formed an alliance ahead of the election slated for May, which the winner is said to achieve a threshold of 50 plus 1 majority of votes. This comes after the Southern African country's parliament set May 19 as the date for fresh presidential elections and after a constitutional court nullified last May's ballot results, which incumbent President Peter Mutarika narrowly won. The leaders of the two parties, DPP's Peter Mutarika and UDF's Atupele Muluzi, say they are driven by common values to improve the quality of lives of Malawians. Channel Africa spoke to Jimmy Kainja, Malawian political commentator and human rights activist, who says it was necessary for the two parties to work together for the greater good of the country. I think to start with, I think you need to understand the background or context to the whole issue. I think the alliance has been necessitated by the fact that they said uh, February ruling, uh, court ruling, which annulled in the previous elections. The, the, the court ruling on the 3rd of May, uh, um, on the 3rd of February, which um, uh, annulled in the previous elections, basically 
in the thing there is also an interpretation of the constitution that is never used in Malawi. The court said, unlike the first past the post that has been used since 1994, that our interpretation of the constitution was erroneous, as in uh, saying majority. And uh, when you talk about majority, it should be 50 plus 1. We have elections now on the 19th of 2020, the fresh elections. So in those elections, the winner has to get more than 50 plus 1 um, to win the election. So the DDP um, knows that they may not get that um, threshold, so they need to team up with someone. Um, so in this case, it's been UDF. But also there's a strong regional connection between UDF and uh, the DDP. Like they all come from southern Malawi, UDF and, and the DDP. So maybe there's, there's a bit of convenience there. But also I have to have uh, in mind that between 2014 and 2019, Adupere the president of UDF, specifically him, was a cabinet minister in Peter Mutarika's government. But of course, in the 2019 elections, uh, Abkwene Muruzi went on to contest as a UDF candidate. And I think about a month ago, he suggested that he would work with the opposition MCP. So that was um, one of the most shocking issues uh, yesterday when uh, the news came out that they were going to work with the DVP. Now, do you agree with those that are saying that Muluzi is now a potential running mate for Mutarika for the upcoming election? Yeah, it, it makes sense because, as I said, Muluzi was the cabinet minister for five years and then eventually ended up testing on his own. This time around, you'd have to wonder what agreement has been made for him to come back to work together or have an alliance with the DDP. Sure. It would make sense maybe that if not Muluzi himself, there should be some sort of serious concessions that have uh, been made and, uh, between the two parties. If not running mate, that may be some sort of uh, serious understanding in that it is going to benefit one way or the other. But uh, there are also reports of uh, divisions within both parties, uh, the DPP and uh, UDF, uh, following the announcement of uh, their alliance. If uh, these divisions are not managed properly, surely this will have an impact on how the alliance performs come election time. Yes, the UDF really is uh, not as strong as it used to be, to be honest. Yes, it has a few uh, MPs in parliament, but even Mouros himself, Akhtere Mouros, is not even an MP at the moment. He lost uh, an election as MP in his constituency, constituency where his father, the former president, and, uh, also stood. So, uh, as a party of itself, is uh, on the shaky grounds, anyway. Um, the DPP, I think, with the DPP, is, is suffering what we may call the second term syndrome. This has happened to every party in Malawi. When you go into a second term, you tend to have internal divisions because of issues of succession. Um, it is the same issue basically that forced um, Chilima out. The current vice president of Malawi uh, being forced out of the party because he was unlikely to be taken again as a vice president. So whoever stands as, as a running mate for the winning president in their second term, they are seen as successors basically because uh, according to our laws in Malawi, can only, as a president can only stand for two consecutive terms. So if Malika so. stands now and wins, it means that's his last term and therefore the uh, running mate who ends up being a vice president have a better chance of leading the party into the other elections. So 
those internal divisions are always there as people are positioning themselves for, for the leadership position. And, and, and again, to go back to the previous question, if the agreement is that Mulhouse is going to run alongside uh, Peter Muntalika, then it's obvious. It might not be as serious, but it's obvious we're going to have internal divisions because others position themselves for that position for some time. Now, this alliance um, comes at a time when uh, we had on Sunday UTM leader Solos Chilima said that he will communicate soon once his party decides to partner with another group. Chilima was of course reacting to local media reports that the party is considering partnering with the opposition Malawi Congress Party for the fresh polls. Do you think more coalitions are on the cards in the run-up to this highly anticipated vote? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, Chilima was on one of uh, our local TVs yesterday uh, it was an exclusive interview there. He was not really forthcoming, but what he said basically is that um, he's willing to go into partnership or alliance with uh, anyone so long as they can agree on terms. And of course, he was responding to questions there. He was saying that um, uh, he's happy to stand aside if uh, there's an election. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, an alliance basically uh, with full agreements, and he thinks he may not be the best candidate for that alliance. He's happy to stand aside. That's what that's what he said, but uh, uh, in reality, the situation might be different. I think it makes much sense um, for both MCP and Chilima's UTM to look for alliances because given the, um, uh, the projections, it's unlikely that anyone is going to get 50 plus one. And that was Jimmy Kainja, the Malawian political commentator on the line from the capital, Lilongwe. He was talking to Kumbelo Munjelele. Seven out of ten foreign children in state care in South Africa are undocumented and many crossed borders into the country without adult supervision. This is according to a 2019 study by the Scalabrini Center of Cape Town. 70% of these children are at risk of uh, statelessness, a limbo in which no country in the world recognizes them as citizens. Jermaine Kricher and Yeshil Panchia visited a shelter in Musina near the Baitbridge border in Limpopo, where many of the children find themselves once they've crossed into the country. I come myself at the border, at Bedbridge, because my parents are dead. I don't know what happened because they died when I was six years old. This little girl heard about the shelter while living on the streets. They said if you go at, the, at South Africa, there's a shelter where other kids live and you can get your bed and get your education. I decided to come in South Africa because of I want to be education and have a place to live with other kids. She is 12 years old and has been living at the Christian Women's Ministry Children's Project in Messina for two years. On another bed, an 11-year-old sits playing with the hem of her dress. I come here with my mother and she disappeared at, at the border. My mother saw the police and she ran away. That was six months ago. Lesiba Matong is the founder of the Children's Project, and he says her story is not unique. She is one of thousands of children who enter the country alone and undocumented. In 2008, the town experienced a massive influx of foreign children, and he knew then that something needed to be done. There were many children who were sleeping under the bridges in town, trees during the night and they did not have food to eat. The stories which they were telling 
were very fearful. These children were in numbers, in masses, crossing the borders into this country. So this made us to rise to the occasion when we saw people were suffering and uh, people were helpless. The project now runs a shelter for boys and one for girls and houses around 50 children at any given time. Matong says thousands of children have passed through their doors since they opened more than a decade ago. When we ask them questions, uh, where they come from, why did they leave their own country, what happened, they will tell you about hunger, they will tell you about the wars in the country that they are raging, they will tell you about the poverty in their families, they will tell you about thunderstorms or experiences, natural experiences that drove them out. Uh, many of them tell traumatizing stories. According to a 2019 study from the Scalabrini Centre in Cape Town, one-third of foreign children in South African care homes have fled conflict. Cindy Moyo is an advocacy and child protection officer at the centre that deals predominantly with refugee and migrant children. She says these children are vulnerable, and even more so without documentation. Lack of documentation has got a profound impact on the life of that person, on the well-being of that person, because it impacts on your access to services, especially for children, mostly it's access to education. It impacts, you know, on a lot of things. You can't get, you can't get a driver's license, you can't open a bank account. In some cases, some children cannot even write metric. You find that they are not able to proceed to university. You cannot work, then you become at risk of all sorts of things, exploitation, and yeah, you can't really move ahead with your life. The children are also at risk of statelessness. They don't have any kind of document linking them to any country. If your birth was not registered, you're at risk of statelessness because there's no country that can actually accept you as their national. And that is a, you know, a, a huge problem. Moyo says South Africa needs to do more to protect the children at risk of this fate. So we're simply saying what we need is better coordinated a working asylum system to cater for these children. We need also a working immigration system, we need documentation options, we need the systems to recognize and understand that there is this special category of children that need to be documented in South Africa. This girl has lived in the shelter in Messina since her sister's death six years ago. She has no documents and no other family, not in South Africa and not in Zimbabwe. She recently turned 18, but her future remains uncertain. I wish to finish school if I have those documents. It's my wish to go to school and be somebody in life and to achieve my goals. There are a lot of things that I want to do. Like, I don't want to be an international lawyer. Yeah, I can help, I can stand up for, for the shelter, for the children who are like me. It's what I wish. And that report was by Jermaine Kricher and Yashil Pancha. Africa's most dynamic thought leaders, industry game changers and icons of social activism will feature at exclusive Forbes Women Africa Leading Women Summit. The summit is presented by MasterCard and hosted by the KwaZulu-Natal government. It will take place at the Inkosi Albert Lutuli ICC Centre in Durban, South Africa next month. The ceiling crashes 2.0. Power with Purpose is the fifth edition of this globally renowned event. 
One of the panelists, Elizabeth Moreno, Vice President and Managing Director at Hewlett Packard Africa, joins us on the line from Morocco. Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, Elizabeth, could you talk to us about the importance of this event in Africa, especially when looking at this in the context of women? Look, as you said, the theme of this fifth edition uh, is power with purpose. And I strongly believe that women's economic empowerment is central to realizing women's rights and gender equality everywhere in the world. And do you know which continent has the highest rate of female entrepreneurs? Africa. Of course. Do you know again which continent? Yeah, which is, you know, we tend to forget that. And most of the time we speak about uh, lack of education, we speak about poverty, we speak about violence. Yes, all these problems are true, but uh, we also have some beautiful stories to tell about African women, and I'm absolutely delighted to see uh, one of the most influential magazines in Africa taking this topic and leading it in a positive manner so we can inspire our youth. So I think that's the right moment because Africa is literally blooming, booming at the moment. And I clearly see women as two game changers. And uh, I'm sure that this conversation will be absolutely valuable, not only for the women who will be participating, but also for those who will be listening and, uh, and uh, uh, taking advantage of all, all the conversation that will happen uh, on that day. Now, Elizabeth, you're part of the panel, which will be discussing closing the gender gap in tech. Why do you think more women need to be encouraged to enter technology in order to bridge the digital divide in the world? Um, you know, let's, let's consider that uh, technology is impacting almost every single sphere of our life today. Uh, it impacts the way we live, the way we study, the way we work. And if women are not in technology, they will not be represented in their needs. And technology nowadays is fixing a lot of problems, not only the problems that men are facing, but also the problem that women are facing. So if it is used in almost all aspects of our modern society and it is impacting all these parts of our lives, we have to make sure that uh, these um, uh, gender uh, um, uh, is well represented. And I don't want people to say that women are not in technology because they are not studying uh, engineering or they are not studying science. Nowadays, you can work in technology even if you're not a geek, even if you're not an engineer, because you can bring a lot of different uh, perspectives, a lot of different needs and requirements, and I just want to make sure that we are well represented in these needs. We cannot just uh, consider that uh, uh, the lack of education will prevent women from entering this world. Just, let's just consider the, the number of problems that technology can solve, and you will see that these problems come from everywhere, and independently of your gender, of your ethnicity or race, and you will see why it is important that we have women well represented. Now, Elizabeth, Hewlett-Packard, the company that you're heading, is a multinational information technology company that develops personal computers, printers, and related supplies. How is HP Africa addressing the gender issue? So, uh, 
uh, in many ways. Uh, the first way that is close to my heart is education. We are supporting women uh, in uh, education, in entrepreneurship. We want to provide them with the tools and the means uh, to get access to uh, technology, to uh, get access to study, whether you live in the, an urban zone or a rural zone. We know that uh, uh, today it is difficult to get access to a collective uh, education. So we are providing this kind of tool. The second thing uh, is entrepreneurship. I strongly believe that private uh, uh, sector uh, uh, entrepreneurs will uh, bring a lot of positive income into the continent. And we are creating specific solutions uh, for uh, these young entrepreneurs. Uh, and the third thing, I have recently been in uh, the U.S. at the UN uh, General Assembly, where I signed with UN Women uh, a memorandum of understanding so we can expand the access to technology to women in many countries in Africa, including South Africa. So, um, you know, we are not a philanthropist company, but we are a company that works with purpose and with the ambition to change people's lives in the best possible manner. And I strongly believe that technology today allows us to fix almost all the problems uh, we have in our planet. It's just a question of willingness to contribute for, uh, for the good. And lastly, what are you hoping to get out of this panel discussion and the event itself? Um, you know, I think I have participated, sorry, I have participated to uh, many events like this one. What makes this one uh, special is the fact that um, I, I, I do believe that women have been underestimated in their uh, capabilities to change the world or to contribute to a better world. And having the chance to sit uh, in the same panel as other women who have thought uh, to have a successful career, who may share their ideas, their perspective, who may inspire uh, young girls and young boys and uh, bring, uh, uh, let's say, more hope is certainly something remarkable. When you go to this kind of event, indeed, you learn a lot but you also meet with people who are facing or have faced the same issues you may face, and they bring you ideas, they bring you new ways of doing things, they bring you fresh ways of thinking, and this is absolutely priceless. So that's my, my, my expectation, meeting with other people who will help me think differently, but I will also hope that with my position within HP and the experience I have of women contributing to this environment, I can uh, certainly uh, open the mind of some of the people and give them uh, uh, the appetite to enter in this technology world. Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that was Elizabeth Marino, the Vice President and Managing Director at HP Africa. But right now, the time is 17.30 Central African time. Here's Shwalani Tulo with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, Zambia's former president, Kenneth Gawunda, has called uh, for an end to the mysterious gas attacks on homes and public buildings in the southern African nation. Egypt's former president, Hosni Mubarak, has been buried in a military funeral in the capital, Cairo. And finally, more than 20 people have been killed after yet another day of religious riots in the Indian capital, Delhi. For Channel Africa, I'm Chulani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa's government says tax revenue is expected to be significantly lower than the previous estimates. It says low growth and a weakened SARS have led to the 63.3 billion rand projected revenue shortfall for the 2019-2020 uh, financial year. And this is significantly higher than the revised shortfall of 52 billion rands published in the 2019 medium-term budget policy statement. Government says debt is unlikely to stabilize over the medium term, while debt servicing costs now absorb 15.2% of the main budget revenue. This is currently standing at 229 billion rands, largely as a result of bailouts from financially distressed state-owned entities. Amina Akram reports. The country's tax revenue estimates have been revised down by 10.7 billion rands. Treasury says increases in taxes are limited in the current economic environment. This due to decline in real wage growth in the economy. I, I had mentioned that it would be foolhardy to increase taxes in such a difficult economic situation. In difficult situations such as this, uh, it would have been preferable to actually have far deeper tax cuts, spare demand and, and growth in the process. Now, we're not in a position to cut uh, corporate taxes the way which probably I would have wanted to see. How can we provide tax relief to South Africans now. Eventually we entered into a covenant, a covenant, Momo, wage and salary earners have quite some significant tax relief, which should in some small way help to boost the economy. Meanwhile, government has proposed no further changes in tax rates except annual adjustments in personal income tax brackets, levies and excess duties in line with inflation. The adjustments will provide 2 billion rands in tax relief for consumers. The change in primary rebate increases the tax-free threshold from 70,000 rands to 83,100 rands. This budget means that a teacher who earns on average 460,000 rand a year will see their taxes reduced by nearly 3,400 rand a year. Hard-working, tax-paying South Africans who earn on average 265,000 rand a year will see their income tax reduced by over 1,500 a year. Our income tax system is progressive and the adjustments reflect this. Someone, for example, earning 10,000 rand a month will pay 10% less in tax. Someone earning 100,000 rand a month will pay about 1.5% less. 
motorists will see an increase of 25 cents per liter in the fuel levy, which consists of 16 cents per liter in general fuel levy and 9 cents increase in the road accident fund levy. Syntax has also seen significant increases. Alcohol and tobacco products will increase between 4.4% and 7.5%. Government will introduce a new tax on subheated and heated tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. This will be taxed at a rate of 75% of the cigarette with immediate effect. There will also be an increase in the annual contribution limit to tax-free savings account by 3,000 rands from the 1st of March this year. Price of beer goes up. Price of wine goes up, uh, spirits, uh, including whiskey, gin, and vodka, they go up, including that vodka, by the way, which is called Tito's. Price of cigarettes goes up, piped tobacco, uh, sadly for some retired people, it goes up, and the price of cigars goes up. Government says it is unlikely to service debt for a while. This is because they still have to service borrowing costs for some of the country's state-owned entities. Over the next three years, government will transfer 112 billion rands to ESCOM for the power utility to meet its short-term financial challenges. However, these allocations will be subject to ESCOM providing updates on strategies to manage municipal and consumer debt. They will also have to relook and negotiate contracts and cost containment measures. An amount of 16.4 billion rands has been set aside for South African Airlines to pay guaranteed debt and interest costs. The, the view, for example, from the IMF is that uh, South Africa and Argentina are the two countries within the G20 who have limited fiscal space. Um, but it shows the difficult position in which we are in. And I think we need to wake up to it, all of us, and notice that that which we would have wanted to have, we cannot. It's a very difficult position. We are at a point of cleaning up our, our house, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni proposes taking additional steps to reduce the escalating government wage bill. In his 2020 budget, the minister says they will reduce the government wage bill by 160.2 billion rands over the next three years. To do this, government says they will legalize a remuneration framework from public entities and state-owned entities. The framework is expected to improve and align pay skills with the public service and contain excessive salaries. The Minister of uh, Public Service and Administration has been leading a process within the government to interact uh, with the public sector, trades unions and uh, associations. Um, the process, in my understanding, is going very well. Uh, naturally, naturally, there will be agreements and disagreements. Eventually, I think this, the, the government and the public service workers will find each other. That 160 billion or so has to be found for all our sake. And uh, that report was by Amina Akram.
when I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa's brightest minds in the fields of media, arts, civil society, finance and business are meeting in Johannesburg, South Africa to shatter the long-held stereotypes about Africa. The event, dubbed Africa No Filter Initiative, seeks to use the power of storytelling to disrupt and change negative narratives about Africa and to support voices working to reimagine and tell the full story of Africa. These narratives will be driven by Africa No Filter's dynamic fellows from various parts of the diaspora who will engage with speakers, business leaders, media innovators, cultural institutions, artists and funders from across the globe. More from Paul Nwu, Senior Program Officer for West Africa at Ford Foundation. Um, this gathering is actually a convening that we are using to introduce a, a donor collaborative in the continent called Africa No Filter, hashtag Africa No Filter. Africa No Filter is a project that was started by the Ford Foundation about three years ago to explore ways to present more accurate, nuanced, and contextualized stories about the 65 countries that make up the African continent. Uh, as you might know, the Ford Foundation is a global international funder, and we've done a lot of work in the continent. And we, uh, the, the, the main focus of our work is to fight inequality. So we, we believe that uh, a lot of the inequality against the African continent has actually come from the stories that are told about the African continent, which is largely negative stories. So we are making this investment as a way to empower young Africans to, to be able to tell African stories to a global audience. So we started this as a standalone initiative in the foundation, but uh, there's been a lot of desire and interest from other funders who have not created this larger global collaborative to leverage resources that we're going to invest on African storytellers to tell the African stories to a global audience. So this convening here today is really the launch of this new phase of the project. So the event is happening over two days here in Johannesburg. What sort of issues are you tackling? So for the first day, which is today, we have a very large convening that we are expecting about 250 people at Turbine Hall. And really, um, the event today is going to be uh, a discussion on the different uh, parts of uh, the African continent and what drives African narratives. So some of the sessions will look at the impact of uh, negative narratives of the continent on doing business in the continent. For example, that's one of our first sessions today. Here we'll have some businessmen from both Nigeria and South Africa looking at the impact that uh, the negative narratives have had on the ability to do business. We'll have a session that will look at who actually needs to own African stories. Because again, as you might know, 
Uh, a lot of African narrative is being created, not in the continent, but out of the continent, in the CNN and the BBC. So we have, we're having a session on you know, why we Africans need to be the one that owns uh, you know, the, the creation system for African narratives. Uh, we're also showcasing some work that we've supported over the past uh, year and a half. We've had these African no-filter fellows that we supported to be able to do some amazing work on African narratives. So we'll showcase some of that work and we'll have discussions with some of them. One of our fellows is actually a South African journalist, uh, Kadija Patel. So she's also going to be you know, um, showcasing a panel that's looking at talking, you know, uh, speaking truth to power through journalism. So it's actually going to be a very vibrant thing with different uh, panels and discussions. And tomorrow we'll have a more smaller meeting which will be mostly the funding organizations coming together to now look at the benchmarks. How do we know, uh, you know success for this uh, initiative? How do we measure success? So today is the public-facing one. Tomorrow is a more smaller private meeting for the sponsors and donors to align. I see the welcome today is by Mama Grasa Michelle. Is this still the case? And just tell us about the significance of having somebody like her opening this event. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, Mama Gracia is Mama Africa. So we are so proud that she was able to accept our invitation. And yes, she will be there today, and she will welcome, you know, welcome us all to to uh, South Africa. And I, I don't think we have a better person that is more suited to be able to do that because she's not only well respected and well recognized in South Africa or in Mozambique, but also across the African continent. So she will be there, she will give us the opening remarks, and she, is, uh, she has been a strong supporter of this initiative. And you know, she's a storyteller, and this is about telling African stories. So we are excited to have her as one of our supporters. Many parts of the world, naturally rich, especially Africa, are poor and parts not well off in minerals enjoy the highest standards of living. Channel Africa brings you a brand new show dedicated to revitalize the motherland with her music and wisdom. Building Building Africa Africa with Love, Fridays 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and all Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Central African Time. Right now, the time is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Nositle Zuma with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. South Africa's Minister of Finance, Titom Bowen, has delivered a budget speech that shows an economy in deep, deep trouble. His speech shows an economy in desperate need for cash, but state coffers are broken, totally squeezed. To make matters worse, the economy is only projected to grow at 0.3% in 2019 and 0.9% this year. Debt to GDP currently stands to over 60%, while government is also running out of options to find innovative ways to tax consumers. Amina Akram reports. 
Boweni's budget shows the extent of economic and financial challenges the country is facing. His budget warns of shortfalls in revenue collection and increasing debt servicing costs, standing at 229 billion rands. South Africa is also a long way from servicing ESCON's debt, which is at 450 billion rands. Amongst other challenges, government can no longer increase taxes because its population is either unemployed or tightly squeezed. But Mboweni says he remains upbeat about the public wage bill, which is expected to decrease by more than 100 billion rands in the next three years. Didomboeno says government proposes taking additional steps to reduce the escalating government wage bill by 105 billion US dollars over the next three years. To do this, government says it will legislate a remuneration framework for public entities and SOEs. The framework is expected to improve and align pay scales within the public sector and contain excessive salaries. The Minister of Public Service and Administration has been leading a process within the government to interact uh, with the public sector, trades unions and uh, associations. Um, The process, in my understanding, is going very well. Uh, Naturally, naturally, there will be agreements and disagreements. Eventually, I think the, the government and the public service workers will find each other. That 160 billion or so has to be found for all our sake. He also adds that tax revenue for the current year is expected to be significantly lower than the estimates uh, in the 2019 medium-term budget. Tax revenue estimates have been revised down by seven billion US dollars. Treasury says that the current economic environment makes it very difficult to increase taxes. This has forced government to propose no further changes in tax rates ex- except annual adjustments in personal income tax brackets, levies, and excise duties in line with inflation. This means those earning just over 30,000 US dollars per annum will get a tax relief of 223 US dollars. Those earning 17,000 US dollars will see their taxes reduced by over 99 uh, US dollars per year. Amina Akram reports. Motorists will see an increase of 25 cents per liter in the fuel levy, which consists of 16 cents in general fuel levy and 9 cents increase in the road accident fund levy. Consumers will pay more for syntax. This consists of an increase in excess duties on alcohol and tobacco products between 4.4% and 7.5%. Government will also introduce a new tax on subheated and heated tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. This will be taxed at 75% on cigarette excess rate with immediate effect. Residents of Hong Kong are to be given around 1,200 US dollars each by the government to help them deal with the economic downturn in the territory. Every permanent residence will also get the payout. This as civil unrest and the coronavirus have both contributed to the economic downturn. The BBC's Asia-Pacific editor Celia Hutton reports. The one-time handout is meant to inject new life into Hong Kong's frail economy. Every permanent resident over 18 will receive the payment. Almost every sector of the Chinese territory's economy has been badly affected following months of violence between police and anti-government protesters. The coronavirus outbreak is making things even worse. 
Hong Kong's finance chief rejected the idea of a cash payment a few months ago, but now he's placing his faith in this stimulus. And for your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 363.16 Nigerian Nara, 10.91 Botswana Bula, at 99.88 Kenyan Shilling, and at 14.67 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.38 Brazilian Rule, 65.21 Russian Ruble, 71.84 Indian Rupee, 7.02 Chinese Yuan, and at 15.17 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British Pound, and and at 92 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,639 and platinum at $929 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $55.35 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusikhe Zuma. And now for your sport, here's Neto Chimani. A very good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chimani. Starting off with football news. The third English Premiership team in the UEFA Champions League last 16 in knockout stage. Manchester City swing into action tonight. Pep Guardiola's side face Real Madrid at the Santiago Bernabeu. Citizens manager Pep Guardiola is fully aware of the challenge his team is up against. It's the real, real test. So the king of this competition Against one team, they are not used to play this kind of game much because our best performance was one semi-final, the Champions League in our history. So, and a marvelous stadium that we have to show our personality. So, I know that my players, myself, all the club, want to fight until the end for this title, arrive in the last stages and maybe one day dream to win the Champions League. But you, you want to dream that, you want to do it, you have to face these teams sooner or later. Today's in the last 16, but maybe in quarterfinals, maybe in semifinals, maybe in final. You have to beat Madrid, you have to beat Barcelona, you have to beat Bayern Munich, you have to beat the big, big, big clubs in these competitions to try to win it. The Nigeria Football Federation, NFF, has given approval for the FIFA Under-17 Women's World Cup second round. First leg qualifier between Guinea and the Flamingos of Nigeria to be shifted by one week. This after Federation Guinean Football, FGC, had pleaded for postponement of the match, which was scheduled for this weekend in Conakry. Channel Africa's Tony Obani picks up the story. Federation Guinea the Football, FGS, has pleaded with the Nigeria Football Federation for postponement by one week of the FIFA Under-17 Women's World Cup second round first leg qualifier between both countries earlier scheduled for this weekend in Conakry. FGF's reason is that the set date of Saturday, 29 February, coincides with the Guinean legislative election and it will not be auspicious to host such an important game that same day. The NFF has sent a letter of no objection 
and though the FGF has fixed a new date of Saturday, 7th March, for encounter and the NFF has accepted, meaning there will be only one week in between the first leg and the return slated for the Gege Stadium, Lagos. The Confederation of African Football still has to give a stamp of approval as a formality. In dramatic turn of events, in the weekend, the death of Nigerian footballer Tiamiyo Kazim in police custody, the Ogun State Police Commander said Kazim was crushed to death while escaping from a police vehicle heading for Abeokuta, the state capital. And reacting to the outrage in the land on the Nigeria Police Force Twitter account, the IGB yesterday mandated the DIG Antony Ogbizi to, with immediate effect, take over the investigations into the circumstances surrounding the death of Lady Diamiyu Kazimo in Sagamo, Ogun State, on the 22nd February. Special Advisory to Nigeria Sports Minister J.J. Akanji says the minister Sunday Dare has called for calm and assured that justice will be done in the matter, reiterating that any person found culpable in the killing of Kazim will be brought to the book. The minister did yesterday was to call the IG to ensure that uh, not only that they are going to probe it, but they are going to get to the root of the matter and that every human being is important in Nigeria, especially the youth who are the future of this country, and that the government will not stand by and watch innocent people killed by anybody, as the case may be. As the COVID-19 virus continues to force the cancellation of sporting events in Europe and Asia, International Table Tennis Federation East African champion Brian Modua is leading the Kenyan team to Olympic qualifiers in Tunisia, Tunisia, starting on Tuesday and ending on Saturday. Channel Africa's Nairobi-based Francis Motegi has more. In the team that jetted out of the country on Saturday for the continental event are top seed Brian Mutua, Josiah Wandera, Doreen Juma and Lydia Setei. Wandera believes they will do the country proud. It's always proud to represent your country in any competition, but uh, I feel like the Olympics is a special case and I feel proud, but I'd be more proud if I qualify and uh, make it to the Olympics themselves here. This young team has produced much better results compared to the other players, the old players who have been in the Kenya national team before. Kenya, which is ranked 12th in Africa, will be participating in the continental qualifiers in Tunisia between February 24th and 29th. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Lib Muswell, technical producer Catherine Maleka, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for joining us. Join us again later for more news from an African perspective. Right now, taking us to the top of the hour is Mangwane by Judith Sipuma. We'll see you later. You